0: Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome to Masters of Modern. Uh, We're here today, and this is the episode about Judges Are Your Friends. We're going to be talking about Judges, and we're going to also break down the Modern Deck Storm. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Glenn Jones.
2: Hello, everyone. How's it going?
1: And today we have Leo Maris visiting us from Venice Beach. Well, close. Culver City. Culver That's... City. Venice, Culver City. <laughs> I don't know where
2: any of those places are. The same, so. <laughs>
1: the same thing. They have the same movie theaters. All right. So today we're talking about judges. So Leo here is a judge. How's, how's that feel? What, <clears throat> what, what does that mean to the world out there? What is a judge? Um, well, all right. So judges are
0: the officiating force, I guess, in tournaments. They're the ones that uh, try to like enforce the rules. Um, make sure everybody, make sure the tournament runs smoothly and basically provide a competitive environment where magic can actually unfold in paper magic.
1: Okay, so you're an elite force of highly trained individuals with a vindictive vendetta to protect all players from each other and their cheating brethren. that's that's great. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So today's kind of, you know, you know, something that a lot of players, I think, when they first walk into Magic tournaments, they have this fear of judges or judge-based environments, more highly compatible things. At least I know I did where, you know, you're walking into a situation and you've been told your whole life tattling is bad. So, you know, I'm at a table playing someone and when I'm playing them... If they do something wrong or even if I have a question, at first as a new player, I will generally be like, well, I don't want to ask the question because I don't want the guy I'm playing with who's my new friend to think I think he's a bad person. So I just won't call a judge on things. Um... You know, today, what we really want to bring across is that this is a bad mentality. We want to <laughs> encourage people that judges are really there to help you. They're, they're, you know, they're a tool brought, you know, encouraged by wizards to be in these environments to make it so that rules and the terms go as smoothly as possible.
2: Yeah, I've always kind of felt like it was a, sort of this deep-seated societal like authority thing. You know, like people generally don't like to involve the cops in anything, regardless of whether right. the cops should be involved or not. You know, pe- people view that happening as, like, a bad thing because only bad things require the involvement of the cops. But that's not actually true. Like, there's all kinds of roles, and especially when it comes to magic, which is obviously significantly less dangerous right. <laughs> than anything a cop like, would in. You call a judge
1: over you're not, like, oh, I forgot that I might go to jail now, that thing that I did wrong. Oh, yeah. no. Like, it's like... People view calling a cop
2: as, like, escalation in all circumstances. And in case of magic, like, calling a judge can be escalation, but it's not the default mode. Like, generally, it's, you know, like, calling for a target representative and a target. It's, like, not that (laughs) you just need a little help and don't know where something is or how something works, and you just flag them down.
0: It's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. No, I... I mean, we do come across a little bit strong sometimes, intimidating, uh, if in, you know, in, in certain circumstances. Right. Yeah, I mean, for somebody going from tabletop magic over to competitive, it's definitely a little daunting to interact with us, I, at least from a new player's perspective.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, way actually, the way I got kind of around the problem of judges and, like, and being able to call on them is, you know, something, a habit that is actually good is just call them for everything. When it really comes down to it, like, if you have a question, if there is anything going wrong, even if you think you're doing something wrong, or even if you're like, well, I don't know if, like, this morph creature, when it flips over, is at instant speed, or if it's on the stack or not, call a judge, because the person that you're playing against, especially at REL tournaments, isn't your friend. They're, I mean, they're, they could be friendly, and they could be your friend, but they're not, they are not there to help you win. They're there to help themselves win, so it's better to ask a judge to be there for you in those situations than not.
0: Right. I think the key word here is that we are playing in a competitive environment. Okay, in a competitive environment, there are rules that have to be followed, and a winner and a loser have to be determined. Okay, we can't all win. It's not how this. This not, It's not how we can't we all play. win. It's no, <laughs> unfortunate. <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> we can all win at having fun at playing Magic, right. which, is, which is more not online, the way I play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you know we do also need to provide the integrity of hey that win actually matters right so the so, so people who are competing for not only the prize but also there's a sense of accomplishment beating everybody else or being the, the you know number one champion at a you know x amount of player tournament there's a lot of um, you know gravitas that comes
1: with right. it. Well, it's a competitive environment and you know people are taking mm-hmm. it seriously. There's money and or pride and or important things on the line, yep. uh, plane tickets, you know, and so like these are situations where people are going to take it seriously and judges allow an environment where you know you as a new player won't be taken advantage of by being new to the Mm -hmm. environment and make sure that you don't make mistakes that sometimes people make
2: and following through from like the you know the highest tiers of competitive play like pro tours and all of that and all the way down to you know things like fnm or even just random weekly tournaments uh like, the, one of the things the judges are always there to do is protect specifically, and what you were alluding to, like, the integrity of the game. Like, if you win a game where something went wrong, that kind of, that salts it, right? Like, it's not quite the same. But when you win a game, everyone did everything legally, no one made any, you know, over oversteps as far as the right. rules go, and, you know, that victory was determined on the merits of play and the rules of the game. Like, that's how you want every game to be. You right. know? You don't, no, that's why cheating is so frowned upon everywhere, because <laughs> it goes outside the integrity of the game. And I, I don't think that... I'm not saying, you know, necessarily that judges only correct cheating because you can very accidentally disrupt the integrity of a game. Right. It's very easy to do. You know, you forget to put a creature in the graveyard and it just sits on the battlefield. Like, you weren't cheating, but, like, that obviously
1: affects that game negatively. I mean, and and to your detriment, to your, like, there are times where I forgot to draw a card because, like, I was like, oh, I have at the beginning of my upkeep effect, bam, and then I'm like, oh, I didn't draw a card. And that's the situation you want to write it back, call a judge maybe if it's how far it is, and then they'll kind of help you figure out the best way to make it fair for both players to make sure that the game state kind of goes ahead as it's supposed to have gone in the first place. Right.
0: Now, I mean, when, when somebody commits an error, you know, the, the severity of that error could range anywhere from, uh, you know, just a, a quick, easy verbal communication that says, hey, that was, you made a mistake, that's a warning, you know, don't, don't try not to do it again, you know. Right. But... and then it goes down deeper into like oh man you forgot to do something that you know moved a card from one zone to another and uh you know that, and we're like four or five turns ahead, and then all of a sudden, you know, we have this game state that like can't be repaired because, you know, under the the guidelines of backing up that we get, you know, when when somebody forgets to like Glenn mentioned, put a creature in the graveyard, and a few turns have passed. Unfortunately, all the decisions that have been made since that mistake was happening factor in that creature existing on the battlefield. Right. And then at that point, you know, while the while it, to certain people might seem like this is completely unfair, um, we would leave the game state as is because uh, of all the decisions that have been made since that point right. have factored this creature being on the battlefield, going to try to take all those decisions back actually is a more detrimental like disruption to the game state than the actual creature being creature there. Being there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which, I mean, and I, explaining this to players, sometimes, like, they don't understand. This is... creatures clearly an advantage
1: to them, like a huge one. Right, yeah. right, <laughs> And... Wait, uh, you're saying that I want to have creatures in play while playing Magic? <laughs> the game about playing creatures and attacking your opponent? <laughs> At least in standard. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be getting to that, how that's not true in a very, very specific deck. Uh, <laughs> right. So... Kind of moving on, what are some things you want to players to kind of keep... or What, what are things that players should keep in mind about judges, uh, one, coming into a tournament? Things like specific ways that, you know, the correct way to communicate with them, the correct way to interact with players, when a judge is at the table, et cetera, et cetera. Uh,
0: okay, so I. while every judge has their own way of judging, there is kind of a sort of a, a generalized... Um, I guess, demeanor that we're all supposed to share at the table. Okay, we're supposed to all be very cordial and polite to all the players when we take one. If a judge, like, comes up to you, or comes to the table, rather, brash or upset or anything like mm-hmm. that, um, you can take his demeanor into account, and th- this is why a, you know, a floor judge is a floor judge. And Oh, well, hold on. Let me explain the, the structure before we...
2: Yeah, that probably, yeah, yeah, probably yeah.
0: makes more sense. Okay. Um, so... There, in a tournament setting, there's always going to be floor judges who who are the first responders to any kind of need or and or call that players have. And then there's always a head judge who kind of oversees all the the all the decisions that are made in the tournament. Um, he or she uh, is the final say in all regards. So the way uh, a call is taken this player initially calls for judge very loud, holds their hand up, and the judge comes over. Um, whoever's the closest one, right? Uh, and, and they attend to your needs, and if you don't like the ruling or the way that they handled the call, you can always appeal. And the appeal goes to the head judge. The head judge will come over, assess the situation just like the floor judge did um, with all the, you know, facts up to that point, and then make a ruling based on
1: what he or she... Right, based off of the judge of the call of the first the, first the floor judge, judge and, and, and his own investigation. decision, investigation on the yep. mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And, and that's always available to you. Uh, the head judge, unfortunately... Appealing. Yeah, the yeah, appealing is always available to you, and you should always use that uh, if you feel even not even remotely comfortable with. Like, if a judge tells you, "I think this is how it goes," and you he he sounds a little dubious in his conviction, you can always call over the head judge and right. um, or at least appeal him. And it, and like, I feel like a lot of players don't use this enough.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fair. I agree. I, I think. I think. I mean, totally honest. From a perspective of one of these players, is sometimes especially for newer players you guys is they don't know it's available they don't know and they also don't know how appropriate it is to use it as, like they've already they've just gotten over the fact that oh I should call judges for things now <laughs> I have to like call the judges judge and like yeah, yeah, exactly. level up to like the bigger bad guy so like and they're not bad guys and so like that's kind of where the weird perception comes from yes and
0: um, <laughs> yeah basically that I mean the the what I want to emphasize here is that Judges are humans, too, and we do make mistakes. Um, And it is totally uh, within the realm of possibility that a judge gets it wrong. Uh, I know myself, I've, you know, made a lot of bad calls when I was uh, level one. You know, uh, now I've had a few years of experience and that doesn't happen as much. But there are moments where I don't get it right. Okay, and getting another set of eyeballs on the situation, regardless of whether or not the level 3 judge is going to rule in the same manner that I did. I mean, or sorry, the head judge, I should say, not the level 3, but could be 4 or 5. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they, they have a better uh, experience and knowledge of the game rules than I currently have. And they would otherwise you know, be able to supply a further insight into the you know, altercation or situation that occurred.
1: In, right. Yeah. So there are five levels of judge. There are. And the process for getting to each of those levels are? Uh, there's a different criteria for each one, but
0: basically like the general assumption is you take a test that tests your rules knowledge and pass an interview that requires you to um, interact with a higher level judge and see if you've mm-hmm. actually obtained the appropriate skills and or um, rules, knowledge. rules knowledge to pass right. the or to be. I should say performing at the level that is expected. So level ones, you they're the, they're the they're the that's where you start. Um, actually, you start at level zero. If you want to start judging yeah. at FMs and stuff like that, you don't have to do anything. You can just talk to the judge who's judging there and say I want to help out, and then they'll start mentoring you. And that's uh, the, all the all the the judge program is all. Um, like, volunteer, mentor-based. Right, yeah, right. There's, yep. there's no... there's. We, we judge because we want to. There's. I mean, obviously, there's other motivations, but that's the main one. Right,
1: right. I mean, they really are donating their time in many senses to help these tournaments. A lot of times, you know, there's a situation where they love playing, they love being in the environment, but they're not... They're better suited, and they feel like they enjoy more helping players than they do necessarily competing in the tournaments.
0: Right, yeah, no, there is a sense of, like you know um community community and or fulfillment when right. you do serve as an officiator for these things sure yeah so yeah the um, amount of responsibility that you take on as you move up the levels just is exponential is the way i would kind of describe it like level 1's yeah. your responsibility is to basically one store level 2's are local judges local area judges which means they're responsible for like a greater part of the community, they they go. there's at the current standings. The way that Wizards wrote things out, you can't have a store PTQ without having a level judge present, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is a new rule for all stores to apply by by 2015. I think is when it starts. Right, I think. I think. And we're a good at, rule. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Level twos are um, competitive rule enforcement level judges. At level passing the going f- level one test, uh, know your your basic rules of the game. Um, I would say about six months of, of, like, actual play experience, you can probably be ready for the for level one test.
1: And level ones are generally FNMs, yep. like, uh, yep. you know, random yep. store open tournaments versus, mm-hmm. like, a GP, for instance, has only level two judges at a minimum, correct?
0: Uh, no, there's some level ones that come on, but they're very close to level
1: two. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's it's almost always people who are like planning to test that weekend, or right, right. or if the tournament is particularly understaffed, they might like right. recruit some some like, locals, which could be a larger problem going forward.
1: Right. But, well, we mentioned yes. last yeah. last week. Uh, GP Vegas had probably a, a, a grip of level ones just because. Yeah, and GP, they ran out of judges. In the they, world. We did. <laughs> uh,
0: GP Vegas. Lit- Sean Cantonese was our regional coordinator at the time. Uh, he's a level four now, mm-hmm. uh, and not—he's no longer our regional coordinator, but that's okay. We still like him a lot. Right. Uh, he basically <laughs> like just blew the battle horn and told everyone to just to sign up for this event because <laughs> we needed literally every available judge right. that would actually volunteer to participate.
1: So that was kind of cool to see everybody there. Yeah. We did, yeah, and well, we, people flew in from other countries. There, I mean, I, I, I there was a, at least three judge interactions I had were like. English was not the first language. <laughs> no, definitely not. No,
0: this tournament, it was cool to work the biggest magic tournament. Right, right, I can and, imagine. Fun fact, um, I called the draft day two, so I oh, okay. called the largest magic draft. Congratulations. Oh, okay. <laughs> not bad, not bad.
1: There's a shout-out right there. Yeah, That's a lifetime achievement. You should it have is. a little badge that you wear. Uh, it'll
2: last at least probably like a year, a year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll I'll, see. I'll, I'll revel in, I'm reveling in it. The next, the next five thousand. years. Oh man. But um, yeah. So level twos are your are your you know competitive REL judges who are very in tuned with how all the procedures work for competitive environments and have more than usually uh, are pretty good at making sure things go the right way. When you call them over for rules or right, any right. kind of interactions. Now, a newly minted level two is not going to have nearly the skills that a like veteran one to two year L two is going to have. Right, right. Yeah, and that's to be expected. Which is why, like those newly minted L twos are going to need to get appealed every once in a while. And you should always like if you you don't ever take a judge for its face value if you feel like something's wrong. Right, like if they. I've I've been to you know calls where I've completely reversed my ruling based on a one more sentence the guy says because he didn't include that in his initial like,
1: right, mm-hmm. right 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 oh yeah I mean magic the... is probably the most if not one of the most complicated mm-hmm. games out there yeah um and you know the you know comparably you know computer games everything's kind of checked for you that's is why Moto doesn't need judges but in real life you know there is a bunch of pieces of cardboard that mean things and sometimes people don't represent what that means correctly or they don't. Assume how it works is the way it works, and therefore, you there. You know, people make mistakes.
2: The nature of magic, as you know, a game that frequently people start playing at their house or kitchen table or whatever, also contributes a lot to that because the idiosyncrasies of you know house rules oh, or yeah. your how you learn to play your spells or or whatever can certainly you know contribute to people not meaning to but just you know incidentally and re- repetitively uh, affecting a game state negatively. One one of the most like larger flaws and the magic rules have actually been like uh, sort of manipulated to allow for you know, the is the actual casting of a spell. There are essentially you know two ways to cast your spell, and that's like not really normal for any right. other game, <laughs> like any card game. You know, it's the the, the correct. You know, associate mode is, you know, you announce your spell and you pay the cost associated with your spell. But so many people at their kitchen table, they learn magic by they tap all their lands first and then play their spell or like do something else and then the spell for it. And, And so there's this kind of like misordering of costs and announcements that can go awry and targeting and things like that. And so that's actually one of the more confusing areas, I think, for players, like learning when they're supposed to say, I'm playing the spell, I'm targeting this guy, I'm paying this cost for it. Yeah, th- things like that, especially abilities that are, would be, you know, like, sacrifice a creature, target creature gets plus two, plus two, like, can I, you know, how can I play this card, can I target the sacked guy, like, et cetera, et cetera, and people just don't, that's not a super intuitive way, because they come with so many misconceptions.
1: Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, if it's your first competitive event, and you've, like, gone from tabletop magic to this,
1: you're gonna get a few warnings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, guaranteed. Uh not... well, I mean, there's, like, small things, like, the sideboard as a concept is something that... Tabletop doesn't have, and so are you allowed to have 15 cards? Some I've been in tournaments where I've walked in and the person like plays their deck and then has an entire white box of cards and they start switching <laughs> in and out of their deck. And I'm like, you can't yeah, do yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> and, oh, you, you don't like the 500-card right. yeah, 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 That's so good, though. <laughs> Binder board? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and part of the problem is sometimes the mentality is this, and this is kind of on the onus of the player, is as a new player, you should not get mad sometimes at your opponent If they call a judge on you for some of these mistakes. Because in these situations, like, I felt like the bad guy for telling this guy that you can't have a 500-card sideboard. Or he looked at me like I was the bad guy. And in that situation, you're like, well, now I feel bad for playing correctly. And that's a mentality you don't want to happen in the community.
2: No. One of the ways I like to handle, like, almost all situations like that where I know that my opponent has done something that they're not allowed to do or has a misinterpretation of how a rule works or something like that is I, I explain my understanding of how the rule correctly works and then i say but you should definitely call a judge to make sure because that sort of removes the feeling that like i'm like you don't know how this works i'm calling a judge right, you know right, which right, they right. feel as <laughs> they feel like they feel like offended or a little accused by that but instead i'm you know moving
1: you know this right, is how
2: right. it works but you should make sure and and then it's them learning from the judge instead of me bringing the judge to correct them. And it's the same end result, but it obviously like feels totally different really, when the players, you're the one initiating the judge call.
1: The players have more respect for each other at the table. They they don't. There's not as many feel bad moments. The judge is there as a helper, which is a good habit for the player mm-hmm. to learn. It's kind of a better application to how you deal with rule. Um, inconsistencies, then most people's reaction, which is, judge! And then a judge comes over, and it's a little bit more antagonistic than it should be.
0: That's true. Um, Having clear communication with your opponent is actually something I encourage in all my like head judge announcements when I start today, right. and it's almost never followed a lot of the times, so. <laughs> yeah. um, which sucks. But you know, unfortunately, it's kind I don't of. I like to talk
2: to strangers. Yeah, <laughs> there's that. You know, the, anti- not to.
0: <laughs> the anti-social aspect of uh, of our player base that happens, but also the let's like, just like, you know, trying to trying to
1: encourage like well, tensions we, are high. You're like I'm a running on adrenaline, and, and like which is surprising because it's a card game. But like you know, if you're in round three and you're one-on-one, and, like, everything hinges on something, you're stressed out, and which is why sometimes these tournaments are so exhausting. And that's, you know, when tensions are high, people are not the nicest. I agree. Yeah, you've used all your brain power to try to
0: calculate a certain move, and now you have to waste some on dealing with somebody's behavior or... You know, they're uh, are handling a situation that goes against all the decisions you've already made. Right. Right. Right, right. Which is, which is where the, you know, the, the, the true sportsmanship shines through for people.
1: All right. So next we're going to move on to, you know, a couple things that you want players to know, either be they rule kind of situations or how to interact with judges at the table in a, a tournament environment. Um let you start because you're the judge and so
0: (laughs) (laughs) what do you want us to know (laughs) yeah one of the most important things I everybody should know um, regardless of what you uh, how you may think of us when you initially go in uh, how we swing our authority etc whatever it doesn't matter one of the most important things that we don't explicitly say but it's sort of inherent in the way that we handle things is you should never ever lie to a judge it's part of the rules uh, but people like think that we're always asking questions to see if we can lead you into trouble, which, you know, some people feel very defensive when we start asking them, hey, what exactly Just like happened? the cops. Exactly. <laughs> Just it's don't... Honestly, it's... Don't lie. Just be fully straightforward. Don't withhold anything because uh, that can always be escalated Unnecessarily, Right. It happens way too much. Uh, when I ask people, hey, what happened here? They give me a very vague uh, story which doesn't actually answer my question a lot right. of the times. And then I'll ask him again just to verify to make sure that they're still, you know, trying to at least maybe give them a second chance. And, right. And if they still come up with, a, you know, some circumvention, right. I have to assume that they're cheating or at least trying to protect something for some reason. They're
2: trying to obscure the truth. So if you're going to lie, Kaiser Soze style, you know, really work the story, get a lot of specifics. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, yeah. Not that I'm encouraging you to become better liars, but... Yeah. uh, No, yeah, I, I definitely get what you mean. And obviously, you know, people just around other humans you kind of realize when someone is you know trying to trying to lie especially when they're bad at like children you know they'll like not give you the full truth or like hem and haw a little bit about certain details and you're like look man just just be square like it's probably fine and and by and large i think it is probably fine the most all of the stories i've heard where someone got dq'd for lying not all but like the vast majority like there was no penalty for what they actually did or no significant penalty, like a warning or something like that. But then the, what, the fact that they lied about it, they, it had to escalate from that point. That's, yep. that You cannot allow people to lie to judges. It just has to be like the most significantly punished activity, really.
0: Well, yeah. I yeah. mean,
2: among them, because like, it's mm-hmm. it's easily the most destructive. A judge just can't do their job if players are not telling the truth. It's yep. impossible.
1: And, and when it comes to that, I mean, we've talked about it already, but or before, that judges don't help. And by lying to them, you're making it so they can't help. And it's a and it's a way that is malicious intent normally. So it's a way that's hard to look fondly on when all they're there is they're donating their time to help you figure out what's going on.
2: I I would not say malicious. I would say self-interested. Yeah, that's probably more accurate because a lot of the times people, you know, they're like, I don't it's not really a big deal. So I'm just going to conceal it. Like that's like kind of their thinking they're rationalizing it to themselves, obviously. And that comes from their self-interest. But, you know, and and in many cases, they might be right. Like, it might not actually be a big deal. But that means you should be honest about it. Not that you should conceal it.
0: Yep, exactly. Um, I mean, there's been more times than I care to share that, like, the the situation could have been that much easier handled. And, you know, we could have gone right to the ruling and getting them back to playing magic. Whereas, instead, I have to spend five, even ten minutes investigating why this person isn't being so forthcoming. Like, why why are... (laughs) What, what's the problem here? Why, well, you're right? And uh, it's it's really it's really just you know don't do it and <laughs> and we'll get along just fine. If a, if a call has lasted more than sixty seconds, you are entitled to a time extension. Mm-hmm. Um, anything less than sixty seconds, and you ask for a time extension, the judge is going to frown at you and say no. Play magic. <laughs> That's a little too sharky. <laughs> yeah, it's it's again, you know, a privilege that you don't want to abuse. Like they're they're
2: there to try and make sure that they help the experience without necessarily making it any worse for
0: either party. But there's there are limits. Yep. And I guess the uh, one of the one of the last things I want to touch up on is uh, judges actually cannot provide advice. So the way you mm-hmm. ask questions. As far as how certain cards play out, you need to make it real easy for us and create a scenario that is in a vacuum, not directly uh, from the, you know, the, the game state that you're actually currently representing. What I mean by that is, if you ask, hey, how does my card, if I do this on my opponent's things, what will happen is to vague it's too vague it, yeah. it honestly puts us in a weird position because you're asking us if the move that you're about to make is, is good is good <laughs> <laughs>
2: is this a good play should i
0: do this should i should I, yeah stuff st- stuff like that like you can't word it that way so asking us instead hey it if i play this card on this particular scenario and nothing else happens what would, would be the outcome of the uh of of the stack, or, right? right, right.
1: Or, or like, how does the rule well, like, scenario a, a play? A good example is like so, and this is a common mistake a lot of people play. And we haven't actually touched upon it yet, so this is good to kind of bring it up here. Is Tarmogoyf and Lightning Bolt? Yep. Um, Where the the way you would assume it would work is uh, Tarmogoyf know, is an X three, so he like a land and a sorcery, sorcery. are in the graveyard because they thought he's because they scum. That, yeah. <laughs> 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 and so you're like, oh, I have Lightning Bolt, I can kill Tarmogoyf, so you Lightning Bolt the Goyf, and Goyf won't die. Because the lightning bolt will go into the graveyard before light, Tarmogoyf is killed by state-based actions, which are complicated and we don't need to go fully into right now. But <laughs> <laughs> what it breaks down to is that before the Tarmogoyf has the chance to die, the lightning bolt would be in the graveyard. You can ask a judge, if I lightning bolt this Tarmogoyf, will it kill it? Correct.
0: And if if I lightning bolt this Tarmogoyf in with with yeah, that's know, you want a, to specify two, three, the three. Yeah, yeah yeah as a two three because this and this and I lightning bolt it and nothing else happens,
1: right? Well, will the Tarmogoyf be... where will the Tarmogoyf be? Yeah, <laughs> in, in, is... in the graveyard
0: or in play? Right. And the answer is, I would say it would be in play. Right. Right. But if <laughs> if you just come up and say, hey, uh, I have a Tarmogoyf, my opponent has this and this in the graveyard, I bolt it, you know. Does the tarm- would the Tarmogoyf die? And I'm like, I have no idea. Your opponent could do something in Ooh, response. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also
2: worth noting is, you know, a lot of these questions, specificity, as we've you know said, is very good. For example, there's a big difference between, you know, if I lightning bolt a Tarmogoyf that has a sorcery and a land in the graveyard, will it die? Versus can I lightning bolt a Tarmogoyf? Because you can always pretty much lightning bolt a Tarmogoyf, right. but that's not what you're trying to figure out. You're <laughs> trying to figure out the result of an action. So you know, and that can be the judge is not allowed to correct you in that instance, right? Like, no, yeah, if you say, "Can I tar- Can I lightning bolt a Tarmogoyf?" Yeah, they just have to say, "Yeah." Like that's just, that is a legal thing you can do with a lightning bolt. It's yep. not necessarily going to be as they can't say, but like obviously, it might not be as productive as
0: you're imagining. I mean, I can't ask questions for you right <laughs> i can try to clarify because i know how people's intentions kind of end up being right but if if you ask me a straightforward question like can i can i bolt this tarmagoyf without asking me will it die in this scenario with nothing else happening you know there's right right you'll,
1: you'll fall into the trap you're
0: beholden to your code <laughs> and then you bolt the tarmogoyf and then I tell you it's not dead and you're like you said I could and I'm like yeah I did and you did <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's
0: got three damage marked on it Achieve. achievement unlocked <laughs> I'm sorry you didn't get as far as you wanted with that lightning bolt but you know that's it's right. yeah, yeah. you're probably close you got another one <laughs> <laughs> it won't go now. There's already one... Wait, let's do a quick planeswalker show. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally, guys, there's uh, one of the last things I want to um, touch up on is you. sometimes you, you will have bad interactions with judges. Okay? Right. That's one thing you, you will have come across. Um, whether it be the judge's fault or your own, just know that it takes two people to have an altercation, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the best you can do as far as, and you want to be on the judge's side. You really do. Um, but sometimes, you know, there's, there's going to be situations where a judge isn't feeling it that day, or, you know, there's, uh, the human element, you know, that people are people, people are people. And that's why there's always an appeal process, but also don't ever be rude to judges if you can help it. Right right? there. As soon as you get on the judge's bad side, it is never going to go good for you.
1: Right. And normally you're also, you're like, Magic is not a, it is a wide community, but it is also yep. semi-tight-knit where, like, if I piss off a judge in the area I live, they're going to be judging at every event I play in forever, <laughs> unless they move or I move. Yep. And so, A, grudges in the long run are probably not good. B, these are people that are donating their time in many ways to help, you know, the tournament go better. So, really, they're just trying to do the best they can, and... There is a level of respect and or just respect that you should have for other people that you don't want to really carry over to any other parts of emotions and life Mm. and beyond.
2: Yep. (laughs) And and while it and that's a very good point, I would like to point out, it does kind of cut, you know, we mentioned how judges can make mistakes, so it kind of can cut both ways. Uh, Obviously, you know, when a judge makes a mistake, it's, you know, often the player may resent that judge. Like, that's probably one of the vast majority, I think, Uh, maybe not vast majority, but a significant percentage of negative opinions or negative relationships between judges and players come from a judge goofing something and a player getting upset about it. I think that that's reasonably common. And, you know, in those, I've had that situation happen a lot of times, I've uh, been playing on Magic a long time, and not to say the judges messed up a bunch, but it's been a while. Uh, and in that situation, you know, if a judge comes back later and, you know, it's like, you know, hey, I messed that up. I'm sorry about that. that. That was my bad. It Like it does so much more for my relationship with that judge than them just, you know, pretending it never happened or, anything like that, because, right. like, I I walk away from that interaction if I get a bad ruling, or I'm just like, that judge is bad at his job. I don't want that judge like, judging my matches. That's the only, like, real response I can have. Like, even though it was a mistake and he's human or whatever, you know, it's still, it's it's just the human response, you know, like, I was wronged. And that's kind of difficult to overall, but an apology or just, you know, again, you know, right. we're all
1: people, like, it goes a long way. Well, and I would say... It- a, it goes both ways, and B, it really oh, yeah. comes down to what we were saying before, which is communication is key. Yeah, talk. I mean, like, one, if you have a problem with, and, and these are people that are in a, in a position where they're not going to like have a secondary altercation if you go up and apologize. Yeah, if and I've
2: like, I've certainly been rude to a judge as well, and come back later. You know, like that was uncalled for. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Right. Mhm.
1: Yep. Just a lot of
0: good sportsmanship, but like, just generally speaking, you know, don't. Don't Don't be a dick. The the, the (laughs) Will Wheaton (laughs) Wheaton policy. essentially, yeah, it is. Also, I encourage uh, judges that I mentor and or interact with all the time to make sure that they go up to players and if they botch a call, like, say, I was wrong, and like Glenn mentioned, because we need to look good in the community regardless of whether or not we do things correctly
1: or not right right right. and
2: even outside of just the you know politeness of it uh, it's also important like you don't want that player to continue walking around thinking that the cards work incorrectly you
1: know if you've given them the wrong call they
2: very well might just walk away from it with that
1: right the last part before we start getting onto the deck tech is um how do i become a judge what is the beginning what how do i start the process to make that happen blood oath Okay. Yep. Say Val to a dark. Yep. Slice your hand open. High five. Okay, it. cool. All right. <laughs> That's step one. <laughs>
0: um, okay, so you you have step one is play competitive magic. Okay. I don't I don't I don't think any person has like gone from tabletop magic to being like, I want to judge this because right. you have no idea it's what you're talking certainly about. Certainly
2: not and kept with it, I think. No,
0: yeah. no, no, no. So Uh, let's say you see people being judges, you need to be a competitive player first and foremost. Okay, so play a lot of competitive magic and get a feel for, hey, I actually want to be enforcing the rules that actually occur here. Right. Um, Because if you have no idea what that is, then...
2: Worth pointing out is it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be like, you know, a a pro tour class player or anything like that. It just means you need to be familiar with the environment that
0: you're going to be working in. Right, exactly. Right, step two um, is... you know, get, get in contact with whatever judge you see on the regular. Right. Yeah. If there's, there's judges who constantly judge all things all the time and there's going to, at, at larger scale events, um, you know, getting, connecting with uh, level two, even a level three, um, is, is also a really good starting point. Right. You know, approaching them and saying, I want to be a level, or I want to be a judge. I've, you know, been playing for a little bit and it's appealing to me. Right. That's, that's the question you kind of say to them. And... They're like, are you sure? <laughs> it's typically the follow-up question. But yeah, you sure? You sure you want to do this? And then they're like, if, you're, if the answer is yes and you take the blue pill, then we take you down the rabbit hole. But, you know, we just want to make sure that, you know. You That's when the high-fiving with blood and, and, and <laughs> sacred rites start happening. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Um, it's best to uh, then start thinking about how much time you want to start dedicating to being a judge. Because it's going to take a few hours. And by few, I mean like a hundred. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> Give or I mean, take.
0: I, I'd expect. I'd. i want to see about uh, for an L one candidate, like a good judge, hundred right. hours. But an L one candidate's going to put at least ten to fifteen hours worth of studying, shadowing, um, judge training before they take the. Right, level right. right. Oops. I mean, if you're very far along in, like, let's say you've been playing competitive magic for, like, two or three years and you want to just all of a sudden become a judge, then, okay, that's going to be fast-tracked a little bit because you know where the rules knowledge is. But this is, you know, addressing more of the newer players to competitive environment. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Definitely. <clears throat> and then there's... A, there's after, after you've convinced a level two uh, or even a level one to sort of, like, guide you through the initial process... Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you've you've shadowed them you've you've really engaged in like a couple calls maybe you've judged a few FMs. um now you're at a point where you're like okay i'm thinking about maybe actually getting a level one certification um there comes uh, a written test a multiple choice test and an interview that goes along with it um basically in the written in the in the the, the multiple choice test is strictly te- like trying to determine if you have the skill set required to judge magic
1: at a certain level which right. is the most basic. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are these many layers, what order do they happen? Well, uh, a, yeah. B, and C. Sort of like
2: being able to run a 440 or whatever. Like you got to you got to hit
0: something to get on the field. <laughs> <Like>. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. And then um, then there, the the interview happens where it, it, for level one, anyways, it's more of like, hey, introduction to the actual community, and this is what you're going to be expecting, and and it's a lot of information that gets you know bestowed upon you. But also, the one of the things I like to do when I certify level ones is ask them what their their plan is, right? Right. What what, what tracks you to the judge always program? a good question. What do you want to do within it? Do you just want to be a level one local judge that just judges here, or do you want to do something else? Because we have resources available to get you where you
1: want to be right, right right. and and
0: sometimes they don't know sometimes it's like no i just i just want to try
1: right right you know i just i just i want the better understanding of the rules and my store could you know, use a judge, I could use a judge and, and i just you know and
2: given the demographic of the average magic player you know you're going to have a lot of people who are relatively early in their lives or who are still you know splitting a lot of their time amongst hobbies and or school and or work and that's you know right, a fine right. time to be experimenting with something like that and you're just trying out a, a different kind of responsibility
0: great right. Yep, exactly. Um, and then, uh, it, you know, then if, if you're already pretty serious about it, then there's there's and means to escalate your yeah, involvement and advancement through the program. But typically speaking, a lot of this is there's no handholding. I don't mm-hmm. I don't really do any handholding with regard to uh, if somebody approaches me and saying, "Hey, I want to be a judge." Okay, then show me. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, If you really do want to, you'll follow the instructions I give you and do the the tasks required in order to actually become a good judge because more than ever, we need to be producing quality judges that can actually perform at the level of competition that we're... Like experiment. trying to encourage and, yes. and expected to it, be able to fall through with. Honestly, it's it's at this point right now we're kind of hitting a ceiling with how many judges we can train at at a, at once, right? Right, like, right. Can populate only so many, but give or take, like where you need about ten competitive REL events before I consider you to be a solid, well-rounded level two competitive level judge. You know, right, like right. And and those events happen over the course of about a year, and the way Magic is exploding and keeping up, it's. It's getting to a point where the resources in any given local area are, especially, I'm dreading a little bit 2015, to be honest, (laughs) about how... Well, you got a couple months. uh. (laughs) Right, yeah. How many L2s can I make in three months? (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, I mean, we have people who are very interested, and we're trying to push them along and encourage them as best we can to attend and learn and and figure things out. That's why I said that there's a human element involved when calling a judge over, but the like if you're not gonna judge and somebody else is, and I mean give them that respect of how much time they've already put in to try to actually be a, a, a resource, a resource, yeah, for right, the, mm-hmm. for the tournament. Yeah, I've dealt with rude people before, and it's it's very annoying. Cause rude people that want to become judges or rude as in just random just, just people, random a rude, that are rude. okay, yeah, who think that you know they're entitled to certain things, and right. You know the, their viewpoint of like I'm a player I'm better than you you should just be like kissing my feet type of like right attitude. There
2: is this like those who can't play judge mentality, but like as you've said, you know specifically playing is a very important step and and a maintenance level even of judging yep. well like
0: it is. And I, I to an extent that is true. Ju- judges tend to be not the greatest players in the. the I, I will, they're certainly not as practiced.
2: But yep. I mean, at the same time, they're experienced in aspects of the game that the players aren't. That's specifically why they're there. Right,
1: and There's also <laughs> two different perspectives. Especially like if you're not playing in that tournament, because if I'm playing, then I'm worried about manipulating the board state of my opponent to winning through the spells and creatures I have available to me. As a judge, I'm a, I'm just wanting to make sure that those things you're doing are allowed.
0: <laughs> yeah, in uh, instead
1: of like outthinking your opponent, you have to outthink people right (laughs) which makes sense why the edh community came from the judging community because edh and multiplayer play are so much more about Player player relationships than they are about necessarily knowing like oh i need to play spell a plus b plus c to do what needs to happen to win
0: yep so i mean yeah that's if you're interested in judging you know that's that's how you become one become a be be a full-time prefer, or not be a, be go to enough competitive events where you actually understand how competitive how competitive magic is supposed to play out contact a level one local judge or a level two if you can find one um, and then ask them how to continue that process and hopefully they'll mentor you now hopefully means that you've proven yourself to them and they have the time and resources to give you in order to become that and if they don't they'll usually direct you to somebody else who can right um it's inherent as part of the the program in general when you choose to become a judge that you're supposed to pass on information to other judges Mm -hmm. yeah you're supposed
1: to uh teach and grow the community it's part of the job right so that's what being an elite order is it's oh yeah training more to be part of your order
0: (laughs) (laughs) and that's that's what we're working on right now so we can definitely use people if you're interested so, if you're listening to this podcast, you should email Leo. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: if, for more information specifically, and we'll, we'll get this uh, email the yeah. command cast and we'll kind of lead you guys. And uh, also, below uh, the podcast on rocketjob.com, there'll be a link to the judge program main site. So, you yep. can kind of do research there. Um, so, before, you know, now that we've kind of gone over judges, time for the deck tech. Woo. Woo. We should get a theme song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I dee it dee be like robotic. Oh yeah. Tech, yeah. yeah, yeah, or like just straight metal screaming. Big <laughs> 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 Wow! I'm gonna just use that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <go on. laughs> so today we're talking about a deck called Storm. Uh... So something I'm going to, we're going as a podcast do is when we have guests, especially have decks that we know that they have a lot of experience with. Um, so Leo, you are a self-professed player of the deck storm in multiple tournaments. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, as we've you know, talked about with Affinity and, and um, Blue, White, Red, we're going to kind of break down uh, what the deck does, some of the key cards, and then move into kind of what it does against the specific major pillars of the format. Grapeshot them um, next. <laughs> <laughs> no. So so to kind of explain what the deck does, Leo? Yeah? Yeah, okay. go so, for it. <laughs> uh,
0: the deck is one of those decks that plays by itself. Uh, there's very little interaction with your opponent. Um, you basically try to cast as many spells as you can in one turn, and then a card called Grapeshot, which has a mechanic called Storm on it that says every time you when you play the spell, you copy it for each However many time however many spells you've played before
1: at this turn. Right. So Storm is a mechanic that we mentioned earlier in the previous episode of the podcast where it's it's actually one of the most broken mechanics ever printed, according to Wizards, where there is a scale of card types that they will print in standard ever again, and it is named after Storm as the least likely to ever be printed in standard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um,
2: Somehow it's... we went from like time spiral to f- storm, and we went the right. wrong way <laughs> as far as fixing how we do free spells. <laughs> so
0: I, yeah, one one of the most uh, de- degenerate forms of magic is free spells, right? right? Right. Cast being able to to play something without actually paying a cost for it is inherently of itself uh, just unfair in resources, right? Right. So storm is one of those mechanics when you get to just copy something for free just because you cast a bunch of spells before at this turn, and it plays into that idea.
1: Right. And, and and using the tools available in Modern, there are many ways to, like, with cantripping and uh, mana rituals, which are cards that you cast mana, and they give you a net mm-hmm. greater amount of mana than you cast to start with. It's very easy to cast a bunch of spells and then just play Grapeshot or the other storm spell, mm-hmm. which is Empty the Warrens, which makes a bunch of 1-1 goblin tokens, and either of those just generally... Is in such an insurmountable force of power that it's hard to beat them after that point.
0: Well, yeah, the whole the whole point of storm it's a combo deck, just right. like you know uh, any of the other decks mm-hmm. in this format. Where the, if you are able to assemble your combo, you win. The, yeah, yeah good.
2: Uh, well, one of the differences. There there are a lot of combo decks in modern. We've talked about a lot right. of them on the podcast, even you know. And uh, I th- I think comparing it to Splinter Twin is probably a good way to explain exactly this co- the differences. Right. Uh, because Splinter Twin is a, we've discussed it before. You know, it's Deceiver X Arc Tapper and Tap uh, a guy when it comes into play, and Splinter Twin to make a copy of a guy, and right. that's a two card combo. You just make infinite Deceiver Exarchs, kill the opponent. Easy peasy. Uh, Storm is not a two card combo deck. There aren't any two cards that if you cast them on the same turn you win the game. That's pretty much. That's pretty much true unless your opponent happens to be really aggressive with those fetch and shock lands. Right. <laughs> uh, so instead, it's a, a com- kind of combo deck that's usually referred to as a critical mass. Right. Uh, it's trying to build, a c- cast, in, in this case, cast a, a certain number of spells or re- resources of any kind, really, and, and you're adding them all together. Uh, the whole to
1: kill deck the is opponent. built around yeah. every single card is integral to the entire game. So
2: as, as just way. like a, a random comparison, you know, the deck is mostly rituals and cantrips. So you have a card uh, like Sleight of Hand, for example, which is single blue to look at the top card of your deck, like two, top two cards of your deck. Uh, you take one, put it in your hand, the other on the bottom of the deck. Uh, and alongside that, those cantrips like that, you have cards like Desperate Ritual, which are you know one in a red, make three red mana. Right. Uh, so if I you know were to say Sleight of Hand find a Desperate Ritual, cast a Desperate Ritual, uh, I've spent three mana, I've made three mana, and I've increased my Storm count by two. So obviously that's right. parity, uh, but because I'm manipulating the actual actual value out of the number of spells I'm casting, it's not parity. I'm breaking a slight, slightly ahead on resources. Right, right, right. And Storm is packed with other cards that try and take that exact interaction I've just described and, you know, bend it even harder. You've got a card like Goblin Electromancer, which makes all of your instants and sorceries cost one mana less. So if I have an Electromancer out in that situation... I'm netting a mana and two Storm uh, as far as my sleight of hand, Desperate Ritual Interaction. Uh, If I have the ability to cast Past in Flames, uh, which is three and a red for a sorcery that gives all of the instances of my graveyard flashback, uh, now I can recast all of those spells, double the spell count I've gotten, and net mana. Uh, And so Storm just builds and builds and builds from this uh, to this. Essentially, you're trying to cascade from... Cascade's probably a bad word since that's a mechanic, but you're trying to grow from you know, having three, maybe four mana available to you to having, you know, as much as 20 mana, 60 mana available to you and a bevy of spells that you're casting and drawing more spells with. Right. That basically sums up Storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and a lot of the spells do the same thing. That's worth pointing out, too. Uh, you know, there's we cited Desperate Ritual, pyretic Ritual, essentially the same thing. Uh, sleight of Hand and Vision is also very close. Right. Uh, Morpho is essentially not a card. It just thins your deck, increases right. your spell count, and fixes we'll a little fix bit of mana. mana right. Yeah, Goblin Electromancer, very similar to a ritual, uh, although he's a little more powerful than most, but he's also a little right. more fragile
1: other rituals stronger. Right.
2: And um, so that that's the deck and it, it the biggest virtue I think of, of the storm deck is its ability to ro- run an incredibly low land count. Yes. Uh because that's you know the biggest weapon against combo decks is frequently disruption. You're trying to trade your one of your cards for one of theirs because their cards are very necessary for them to win, but you, you know, Eh, whatever I can kill him with whatever's left right, over. Right. You know, if you're playing a deck like uh, Birthing Pod or Jund, you know any creature can end the game if it's left in play. Obviously, you have more powerful interactions, but realistically, you can attack for lethal with just about anything. So every time you're able to trade one for one with a combo deck, that's generally pretty good for you, as long as you're trading for a card that matters. Uh, and since it's a combo deck, theoretically every card matters. So Storm's way to try and uh, avoid getting attritioned out by things like that, or even mana leak. Uh, is really to just draw more spells, <laughs> which right, is pretty right. easy to do when you have yeah, yeah, yeah. a ton of cantrips and you know sixteen to eighteen lands. Um,
1: and, and, well, you go. I, I was going to say, deck history, but, but if we have more to say in this, <laughs> we rather... yeah, the I,
0: like you mentioned, the one of the best parts about this deck is you run sixteen to eighteen lands, and if you're a type of person who loves doing stuff every turn and um, kind of like you, you're every time you play Storm, it's it's solving a puzzle. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you like solving, if you're good at solving this puzzle over and over and over again, based on the manipulations of your deck and the way that you uh, can carry out these subtle yet crucial uh, manipulations, then you know you can win more, way more consistently than somebody who wouldn't tossing this deck to somebody who's brand new is actually kind of a mm-hmm. like good luck because you're right, probably going right, to get it. Right. <laughs> I guarantee you you're going to make ten
1: mistakes in the first time you play. Mm-hmm. It. It's fine. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, it, it's it's also good because. Uh, one of the reasons I like Storm as a deck to eventually start actually playing is because it teaches you a way to play magic that is so different than normally people are used to that it helps you with rules understanding. It helps you learn kind of how cards work in a way that's different than the normal I play a creature, I attack with a creature, you block with a creature interaction that is really popular in standard and even in modern sees so not of interaction.
0: Yep. Yeah, unless you're killing them with twenty goblins, which you've spent the whole like right, right. time making. <laughs> yes, you do kill them turning creatures sideways, but uh, only once. Right, usually. Now, we,
2: we've talked a lot about how the deck is, you know, pretty homogenized. Like a lot of the cards do the same thing, and you know, you're just trying to grow your mana. Uh, but it's worth pointing out it's a really skill intensive deck. Uh, not only is it testing skills that a lot of Magic decks don't, right. uh, But you know, when all of your cards are like kind of similar, but not necessarily exactly similar. Uh, that leaves you room to make a lot of mistakes. You can make tiny, tiny errors, you know, like burning a Desperate Ritual instead of a Pareto Ritual in, like, a minor moment could very easily bite you because the Desperate Ritual has splice, which could somehow become relevant later on. It's it's a super minor thing, but, you know, every 1% can matter with Storm because when you get it, you win immediately. When you fail, you lose almost every time. So any 1% mistake can actually kill you.
1: It punishes mistakes more thoroughly than I think Mm -hmm. almost any other deck punishes mistakes in the format of Modern... Um, in tier two to one decks. There are probably tier sure. three decks that punish things, but tier three is not it's, <laughs> it's worth noting
2: it's it's a robust and very powerful deck. So right. you know you can certainly kill people making mistakes, uh, but making a mistake generally it matters like it will significantly affect your overall play history with the deck like if you're consistently making errors with storm your wins and losses are going to be way different from someone who is consistently perfect with storm which incidentally is nobody so (laughs) Uh, maybe John even even john has said you know that that's why one of the reasons he likes storm is specifically it's very challenging to him and he, he notices when he makes like a small error and gets punished for it uh so you know even the best, that's one of the reasons they like right. Storm, is that it challenges them, so if it's not for the faint of heart.
1: Right. And for those who don't know, John Finkel is considered one of the top two best magic players of all time, yep. arguably. Yeah, yeah. and he, he did write an article <laughs> about
0: this deck, and mm-hmm. it's, I recommend it to everyone who wants to read we'll, it. Well, we'll
1: post it uh, on the page as yeah, well. Yeah, he's,
2: he's written a couple, and they are excellent. They are among the best articles uh, written on the deck, I think, yep. for sure. We've talked, you know, we're trying, the cards are, you know, so similar, and so many of the cards are just rituals, cantrips, and, and engines. Right. Uh, so... There's not a lot of room to wiggle in your even your full 75. Right. Uh, but in the main deck, I think the biggest talking point, and I'll, I'll get your opinion on this too, is uh, at Pro Tour Born of the Guys, there was a decided schism between two teams. Uh, team Pantheon and Team TCG player disagreed over whether to run uh, Desperate Ravings and Thought Scours or uh, Faithless Lootings, basically. Uh, and team TCG player was a big fan of Faithless Looting, which was single red mana, draw two, discard two, uh, and it flashbacks for two and a red. So it was good at fueling your graveyard to enable a flashback, pass, and flames uh, kill. Right. And it was also very cheap, and the flashback contributed nicely with Goblin Electromancer. Now, uh, Thought Scour and Desperate Ravings, Thought Scour is a single blue to mill two cards and draw a card. So significantly less control than a card like Faithless Looting over what's going to the graveyard, uh, but you know, approximately as efficient and still a similar kind of fuel spell. Uh, and then Desperate Ravings, which was one in a red to draw two, discard one at random. Again, you know, not much control, but it flashbacked for two in a blue. So Desperate Ravings was really excellent at fighting uh, decks that were using Inquisition of Kozilek and Thoughtseize and other one-for-one type effects to discard your most important cards because Desperate Ravings was a two-for-one. It, stri- it always nets you a card, right, and right. if you flash it back, it nets you a second card. So it's a great weapon against those decks. And all the other cards, either, you know, just stayed at parity. Like Thought Scour just keeps you with the one card, uh, or Faithless Suiting could actually you know lose your card, uh, even with the value coming from Flashback. So I'm, I'm curious, what version of Storm did you prefer?
0: Uh, I like the one with Thought Scour more, but okay, um, just to help explain my logic behind that one. Um, for those of you who are just like picking up Storm, there's there's three engines typically in the deck that you mm-hmm. want to you try to shoot for when you're you're using your, your blue spells to filter. You have your Goblin Electromancer. And all, all these engines do something degenerate for the rest of the spells in your deck. Yes. So you, you need to try to get at least... You need to start with one, and then hopefully that draws you into another one, and then you typically win with two going at once. So you have your Goblin Electromancer, which is a blue and a red 2-2 two, two Goblin that makes all your spells cost one less, You ha- which... Basically, fuels all the rituals and spells you're about to play. So every he's if he stays alive and you untap with him, it's probably game. Yeah, that's typically fast right. yeah, of the time. Yeah. He he is by far the most degenerate uh, engine when just raw power level by himself, the impact he makes when you cast him, it's its phenomenal. He is also most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. He is, because he's right. a creature. He's a creature. Lightning <laughs> uh, a,
2: a point of contention from actually that Pro Tour Board of the Gods was a lot of the commentators watching, uh, you know, these storm pilots playing Goblin Electromancer, they would see them just, you know, run out, turn to Goblin Electromancer, go, all the time. And they were like, why isn't he holding it? He can play it on turn three and then play a ritual and then try and go off. And the reason they weren't holding it is if you untap with a Goblin Electromancer, they are dead. Right. <laughs> that is game. <laughs> so like, even though it does give them that turn to kill it, if they don't have it, they're dead basically every time, and mm-hmm. if you go to turn three and you try and go off after spending two mana on the Electromancer, not only are you getting a lot less value, you're just losing two mana, really, right. uh, but also, you know, odds are that all the kill spells that might have killed the Electromancer are, are pretty much still alive to kill it, assuming they hold open any mana, so right, right. they can still interrupt you in a very similar way, so the the EV decision on the Goblin Electromancer, that's, that's how powerful it is, you know, yep. it's a...
0: It is almost a one card win in the deck, assuming that you actually have drawn spells. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's definitely one. And and playing him now, a, a couple of things to notice when you're you're uh, when you're playing Electromancer, all your rituals are instant speed. Mm-hmm. So after you land him, if you want to cast a bunch of rituals without your opponent killing your Electromancer, or in response to you trying to cast anything, you can retain priority and cast all your spells. Yep. Okay. Um, if you have that much mana, mind you, and you have to wait for each one of them to resolve to get more mm-hmm. mana, but Typically speaking, if you just, like, you play your Electromancer and then go to play another spell after he resolves, uh, your opponent has no chance to kill him before you play out all your other Rituals. So as long as you're playing at least three Rituals, you're going to be gaining a mana with him.
2: Yeah, and you need basic, basically four mana to start that up, and it, might, it leads to one of the, more, the less intuitive plays uh, with the deck, which is, you know, on three mana with one blue, you might play a Desperate Ritual first and then play an Electromancer, with two red floating. So now when you go to cast your first ritual, they try and kill it. You cast another ritual and continue chaining from there. Which, you know, normally you would assume you just play your Electromates or play a ritual, but that gives them that opening to actually shut you down. Right. Uh, Which, you know, it can matter.
0: Yep. So if you understood that... (laughs) (laughs) Then you're on the way to Piloting Storm. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Um, The second pillar that I want to discuss is Passing Flames. This is the original... Um, Storm Enabler that came out with mm-hmm. Innistrad. When this card got printed, every Storm player just like threw their arms in the air and started, you know, basically yeah. getting really excited because Yogg's Will was reprinted in a like actually cool card. Right.
2: And everyone else started rubbing their forehead. Yes. <laughs> <And they did. laughs>
0: Past in Flames was a very awesomely designed card now. It costs three and a red, and it basically grants in that specific moment every single incident and sorcery in your graveyard flashback equal to its converted mana cost. Until okay. end of turn. Until end of turn. Yeah. So when you cast past and flames, I suggest all new cards that you choose to put in your graveyard from there need to go in another pile. Okay? It's very important that you keep these piles separate because the first pile are gonna have all flashback spells and the second one will not. Mm-hmm. It's not it doesn't it's not like Yogg's Wolf for the rest of the turn this happens. It's it's only the cards that exist in the graveyard when you cast your past and flames will have flashback. Now, good thing is Passive Flames has a flashback cost, so if you want to get the rest of those that you put in in the second pile of flashback, you can always just flashback the. I have to be
2: honest. I think Passive Flames flashback is like one of the most unnecessary <laughs> instances of flashback <laughs> in Magic history, but it does come up a lot because, as you said, you know, once you've got it in the graveyard, you cast a bunch of spells. Now we, we've talked about ex- escalating from that four mana to that 20 mana. Now's a great time to flashback that Passive Flames right, and right. reuse everything
0: else. Right. And the flashback is five and a, or four and four a red. Red, yep. four red, So it's just one more to flashback, which is why uh, you know the the second team Pantheon was playing the um, uh, Faithless Lootings is because they could count on discarding this card and putting it in the yard.
2: Yeah, TCG player. Yeah.
0: Oh, yep. sorry, TCG mm-hmm. player. Pantheon did the other one. Okay, and the final pillar is uh, Pyromancer Ascension, which I'm pretty sure the R&D team had no idea it was going to like turn out the way it did. Right. They probably like, "This is a fun card." Pyromancer Ascension's one red, uh, enchantment. Every time you cast a spell, one red in, and a colorless. One in red. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> one in red, enchantment. Every time you cast a spell, if there's a copy of that card in your graveyard, you put a counter on it. Once the once the Pyromancer Ascension has two counters on it, uh, every time you would cast a um, instant or sorcery after, it gets copied for free. So basically, if you like casting you know your spells once it's going to be great <laughs> casting them for a second time for free and you don't have to do anything else to it so uh, so you have par- goblin you're reducing the cost of everything by one helping you win that way uh pass in flames basically giving all the cards you've already played a second chance and then pyromancer ascension doubling every single cast you make right which is I think Pyromancer is the worst once it's online, but I said in raw power because you need to spend yeah. time getting it online. It's the toughest, yeah. It's the It's the hardest, but definitely the most degenerate. Right.
1: Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it's probably the the hardest to get rid of but most difficult to get online, while Electromancer is the easiest to get rid of but hardest to get, or easiest, easy to get rid of and easiest to get online. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yep.
2: Uh, and Electromancer... Good to point out is that it's relatively difficult to kill someone with just an Electromancer. Like, usually you have to go Electromancer and feed into a Pass in Flames, which right. is not that difficult to right, get right. to, but it's it happens. But relatively rarely uh, do you actually kill someone with just playing a Goblin Electromancer and then playing a bunch of spells, that none of which are named Pass in Flames. Uh, Pyromancer Ascension, on the other hand, if you turn on a Pyromancer Ascension, it is very easy to kill someone from there. It is right. incredibly powerful.
1: Yep. Uh, so. Cool. It kind of gives almost every single card mini storm to a certain deck where it's storm mm-hmm. one, right? Sure. Storm one, and every time. So that's, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> which is what the decks trying to do anyway. Right. so <laughs> just
1: go full like that.
2: So it yeah. is worth noting the copies do not count towards your actual storm count true. since you're not it's casting true. those
0: spells. Yes, yeah. don't, don't count those. Don't grape shot. <laughs> don't
2: grape shot for eleven. You need the full twenty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: So yeah, typically speaking, uh, I want to try to grab two of the. Th- Two out of the three degenerate engines that are in the deck. And right. Most of the decks actually run four copies of Electromancer, four Pyromancer extensions, and uh, anywhere from two, two or to, three. Two three flames. Right, right. And the reason is because Pass and Flames is expensive. Right. It's the most expensive spell in the deck. Um. And you, while you want to be able to reuse your whole graveyard, sometimes that option isn't really available because of the deck you're playing against and right. a couple other options. So it's not actually. Um, the go-to, but you always want to draw one. right? Right. And your deck is going to be able to do that.
2: Two other really relevant facts is it's, of the three, it's one that you don't want to, or I should say you, you can't really effectively start with. You know, a Goblin Electromancer can lead into a Pass in Flames or a Pyromancer Ascension. Pyromancer Ascension can lead into something else. A Pass in Flames leads into nothing. It's right. It's the end of the road. Like, once you're flashbacking passive Flames, that's when you're like really preparing to kill somebody.
1: Well, and, and always a good rule in deck building is if I'm If I want to cast this on turn two every single time, every single turn two possible, I want to play as many as possible. If Mm -hmm. I want to get to it by turn four or later or get to it when I need to and I can search for it, then you don't need the full four, especially because it could clog Mm -hmm. your hand up.
2: And the more cards you run like Thought Scour... Uh, and Desperate Ravings, those cards give you additional chances to hit a Pass Ooh, in Flames right. and still be able to cast it because if it goes to the graveyard, you can just flash it back. It's one mana more expensive, but when you're at the stage of the game where you're Pass in a lot of the times that one mana is negligible. Not always. Uh, I wouldn't even say the majority of the time, but enough of the time
0: that it's it's free value. Okay, so now to answer the question, which version do I like more? <laughs> more now that we've established everything that needs to go. Um, I like Thought a lot. Um, because of the uh, the gauntlet that the storm has to play against, there's a lot of black running around that makes you discard cards. Sure. So if, while Faithful Looting is a great card to pick and choose, and in a in a in a vacuum, the solitaire version of it I think is stronger than um, because you have more control of what you're discarding. Uh, but that negative one card actually kinds of tends to affect the game in a long longer term, <laughs> um, and your your outs become less. Yeah. Your deck becomes more volatile in terms of exploding fast, but uh, it also becomes a lot more like reliant on making sure your opponent doesn't disrupt you. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that one less card is one less resource, which needs this, the storm deck really needs in this mm-hmm. format these days. So while you have no control over milling two um, with with Dot Scour, uh, which whatever those cards are going to be, I mean, unless you serenvisioned and you know what's on the top of your deck, you really aren't going to get much of a chance, and you kind of have to just take your deck on faith. You honestly play the statistics games with Storm every Mm -hmm. matchup, and you know what? If you're a great pilot, because you can manipulate the resources in lieu of that variance, great. If you just get beaten down by bad luck, that happens too. It's Mm -hmm. magic. So that's that's why Storm is super fun. (laughs) I think. Right, right.
2: It's certainly a good deck to, you know, kind of learn both magic and yourself, because it's a deck you see yourself grow with. You know, when you make a mistake you recognize it, next time you don't do it, uh, and you just keep going and going and going. It's a deck that rewards practice pretty heavily, uh, and I I like that
0: about it. Yep. It's truly exploring every possibility of the cards that you have in your hand and going forward from there, while at the same time considering what your opponent can do to disrupt you. That's the I mean, I know that's the same kind of concept for every yeah. kind of. Uh, for a deck
2: that plays solitaire, there's a lot of yeah. You know, like you're you're imagining the two-way street, really. Like you're playing the you're playing both sides of the game in your own head. You're just trying to make sure it doesn't actually manifest the, the right. bad way
0: on the board. And because, like I, I said, it's a puzzle. Because you play a probe, you know what your opponent has. Right, right. So you have. This is why storm is awesome, and this is why Finkel plays it. Is because you have perfect knowledge of the board and the game state when you are playing it. Usually. That's not that doesn't happen with a lot of decks. Rare, right. Yeah. It does. Rare. A lot of people like if you can encompass and take control over all elements of the game,
1: you can find a route to victory if you're capable of Right, right. It. So, And, and it's reason. from an angle that like most most decks at least at first aren't like generally built to be able to handle those situations easily. So you yeah. have like I have an angle of attack and I know what you're going to try doing so I can M- manipulate my angle in a way that easily dodges what you're going to try and do.
2: Yeah, you have me. a lot of generally favorable game ones, uh, and there is significant sideboard hate, especially post Born of the gods. It came back. Right. Yes. Uh, oh so my god. Yes. Weird, but you, <laughs> but you, as a storm player, like you actually don't get access to the same levels. Uh, you know, you can't dilute your deck too much, or you, you just won't be able to implement your plan at all. You know, drawing. We, t- we talked about Blood Moon, which is a card that can just straight up win, which is why it's a reasonable sideboard card right. for Storm, because, you know, if you can just Desperate retro into a Blood Moon against a certain deck on turn two, they might just not play Magic anymore. You might have completely ended any threat they bore to your ability to win. Right. Uh, but, you know, if any other card, you know, say you were running, I don't know, a Counter Spell just for a random example, as like, uh, that's your like anti-hate card. You know, you draw like two or three Counter Spells in a game, your opponent can still play Magic, even though you're making these like theoretically favorable trades by shutting off their hate cards. You're not drawing enough of your own critical right, mass right. to you've, actually you've, kill them.
1: You're your own hate card.
2: Right, you've you've, you've essentially mulliganed right. in, in exchange for not facing hate. But if you think about it like what if you were in game 1 and you mulled to 5 against an opponent who doesn't have any of their sideboard cards, are you a favorite? Right. Maybe, but probably not. Like your deck's not designed to work on five cards when, all that yeah, well. Yeah. When, like,
1: when your deck is built to have as many cards as possible, yeah. limiting what cards you have is a mistake more yeah. often than Yeah. So
2: you. you really can only afford to sideboard in answers to their to their answers uh, right. if the answer is very powerful or handles like all of their answers. Uh, which is why, you know, you see cards in Storm Sideboards specifically like Blood Moon, which you know, we just said it can just straight up kill some people by taking away their ability to play magic. So uh, that's shatter Shatterstorm. Uh, which destroys all artifacts. Yeah. So in the matchup, you bring that in affinity. It f- mostly kills the opponent. Obviously, it doesn't actually kill them, but it usually buys you plenty of time right. to sculpt and come back from the fact that you had to mulligan in order to essentially stop them from killing you.
0: <laughs> is your are you the opinion that Shatterstorm is better than Vandal Blast?
2: Uh, I think it mm-hmm. kind of varies. Uh, I think right now Vandal Blast is probably better, just because Grafdigger's Cage is the uh, hate card du jour. For those not listening, or huh, for those not aware of Graft Digger's Cage, it's a one drop artifact. That shuts down your ability to flashback cards from the graveyard uh, as well as you know search your deck for creatures or get creatures back from the graveyard, which Birthing Pod happens to do a lot. So right. people have turned to Grafdigger's Cage as a hate card against Birthing Pod that also splashes a little onto graveyard decks like Storm. Uh, and so being able to take care of a graftigger's Cage and, and kill someone that way is useful, and Vandalblast is much better at that than, say, a Shatterstorm, if you were going to board it in. Uh, that said, I, w- I would probably currently be running something like a one Vandal Blast, two Shatterstorm, or something like that, because I don't really want to draw multiple Vandal Blasts. Like, if they draw their cage, I want to have my one Vandalblast, and that's enough for me, because you can kill someone through a Grafdigger's Cage with a Pyromancer Ascension. Yep. It doesn't need you to flashback cards, so there's kind of this give and take, and, and that's why I think Storm might be Poised a little bit to to come back if you know these Jund decks are cooling their heels a little bit on some of that disruption.
0: (laughs) Yep, certain cards that you want to like take into consideration when you're sideboarding for for any match. Um, If any if any opponents playing white, you can count on the some sort of um, rule of
1: law law or um, Eighthstone
0: Cannonist. cards that say meddling mage
2: uh, can can be played. Uh, Eidolon of Rhetoric.
0: Eidolon of Rhetoric is possibly... The best one, The, yeah. the most it's played. It's
2: certainly it, the most powerful. I don't necessarily know if it's the best, because it's the hardest for Storm to actually beat.
1: Right, right, right.
2: The others, like, you can Vandalblast and Aether Sworn Cannabis. Rule of Law costs three mana, uh, so it's, like, so comes it's, down a little late. So does the Eidolon, yeah, so that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, those those are hard for you to remove, but you can actually, you know, kill them theoretically before they can cast right, it or right, find it. the play. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so... Um, like those, those, those ones are very difficult for Storm to deal with, mm-hmm. um, because the best you can hope for is drawing uh, your one removal spell for him, right? Uh, and getting your you something to note if they land one of these and you have an active Pyromancer session, the copies are okay when you mm-hmm. cast. Okay, yeah, they, they don't contribute right, right. to Storm, but con- by the same token, they don't get shut off by the rule. Right. So you're not casting a spell; you're copying yeah. a spell. So, so if you cho- once you get that online, digging through your deck becomes a lot more efficient because you play you get to play two spells a turn, but your opponent doesn't. Something to note. Mm -hmm.
2: Very true. Uh, One of the ways to fight these cards that has caught on a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say it's become, you know, the mainstream version of Storm or anything, is that some people have splashed white into their Storm deck, uh, which I actually did at Grand Prix Kansas City ages ago. Thought I was very clever. I was not. But uh, it has become a little bit of a thing since the printing of Wear and Tear because Wear and Tear can function as, you know, that destroy target artifact to take care of a Graf Digger's Cage uh, or an Aetherstorm Canister. It can also function as that destroy target enchantment, take care of a rule of law or an idol and of rhetoric. So it's a right. lot less powerful than something like Shatterstorm, but it handles the vast majority of actual hate cards you'll see. So if you draw one Wear and Tear over the course of a game, it doesn't matter what hate card your opponent is sideboard in against you, they have to draw two copies. The wear and tear will answer the first one.
1: Right.
0: That's exactly right. Um, another, uh, usually Storm decks play four Bolts on the board also. Very common, yeah. Um, this is because Bolt is a great defense against any kind of creature-based deck. Also hits almost every, um, except for the new 1-4, which is why a lot <laughs> of Storm players were upset. I, rhetoric yes. kind of rhetoric kind of took away the ability for Storm to just answer it with, with burn. Right. Um, also, i bolted people out of games plenty of times yeah. with, uh... With a combination of Bolt and Grape Shot and then hurting themselves with lands. Uh, I mean, it's
2: theoretically possible to, with a single copy of Lightning Bolt, deal 24 damage. Oh, so, right. or actually more than that. Yeah, uh, you can deal, uh... Well, if you have th-
0: infinite Pyromancer ascensions. Yeah, that's like, if you turn on, like,
2: four Pyromancer Ascensions and Lightning Bolt once, you got 15, and then flash it back, you got another 15. So you can deal theoretically 30. Right. Uh, with, uh... A, a single copy of Lightning Bolt, and so a lot of the times, if your opponent's trying to fight you with something like a Surgical Extraction or even a Slaughter Games, you can you know bring in a bolt or two and still have outs to be able to kill them, even if they resolve a spell Where like there's that.
1: There's a game C plan that you can go yes. for. that
2: Yep. Is Emergency release. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: then always. There's always you always bring in one copy of Echoing Truth in almost exclusively every matchup because it's your permanent base removal. It's a blue bounce spell for mm-hmm. one and a blue, but it also hits all copies of the same. Right, so it gets rid of if they. Mm-hmm. I have two. If they rest haven't diversified of these, or
1: have their. Two yeah. grap- uh, grap- cages. Exactly,
0: it answers all copies of the card that's preventing you from winning that moment. Also, if you're re- <laughs> retroactively, if you're playing against the storm mirror and they land a bunch of goblins against you, you can bounce all of them back to their hand and they've literally just lost at that point right right <laughs> <laughs> it can also save your ascension
2: from an abrupt decay which you know is rare as a thing you want to do but it it comes off i've right, done right. it i wasn't proud but i did well that echoing truth
1: can be given flashback later on so even yeah, the exactly. fact that you had to waste it that first time on saving the win condition that if you get off you win instantly yep. it makes it worth it so if you like there's certain cards that people bring in
0: like white ley line that are just a joke yeah really don't matter for you at all um you
2: just ignore it until you're ready to kill them because that's one of the things about the storm bit too like an, a singleton echoing truth you know you mentioned you always bring in the one uh if someone is playing something like a white ley line when storm goes off which leyline of sanctity does not prevent it from doing the going off part is the drawing your entire deck essentially uh i now have that echoing truth it doesn't matter where it was if it was the 60th card I'm good. Bounce that ley line, grape shot you. We're done here. <laughs> we're, uh, we're
0: done. <laughs> yeah, like I like like we mentioned earlier, it's getting a critical mass, but at a certain point like you just skyrocket through the atmosphere and you're making hundreds of mana mm-hmm. and drawing infinite number of cards. Well, don't obviously say that because you will deck yourself and lose, yeah. but you know, just try right. say say y- your opponent can definitely see where you're going and unfortunately you do have to play it out. Yeah. So, um, because there's no way to just like flip your deck over and and show your opponent how you win.
2: Those games are impressive, but the, the difficult games to win with Storms are the game where you're grape grapeshotting for, like, exact seas. Yes. Like,
0: those those are the tough games where you have to navigate on the razor's edge. Right. Um, and then, let's see, other sideboard cards. Uh, Anger of the Gods has been used in a couple sideboards for against
1: Affinity uh, and Pod. Yeah. Though um, so mm-hmm. I think I think Anger of the Gods is falling a little bit out of favor, or... Mostly because of the And I think that island, that's kind right, of like right. When
2: Pod was relying on Aetherstorm Canonist, it was fine, because you got to sweep them up. Right. And it also doubled as, like, a Shatterstorm-type effect, where you were, like, setting their game plan back so far that it was worth the trade-off for you. But I, I think now it's more of a, like, card worth respecting, as opposed to a card you should, you know,
0: jam all of them in your right, deck. Right, right, right. No, my favorite's jamming four blood moons in the board. Oh yeah, I'm. Yeah. I mean, I'm. I'm the right there with you. That's.
2: So, I just want to be
0: like, stop.
2: <laughs> You're done here.
1: <laughs> but do you guys think now with the printing of the new Fetchlands that that becomes a little bit of a losing prospect? I mean, it's certainly blood worse. Blood moon.
2: It's it's a worse card just because their manas are gonna
0: their mana will be a little better, but it's still viable because I mean, of how early you can play it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. When you can turn two blood moons against anybody if they haven't like. They typically will play like a shock turn one, and or you know, some some sort of land that comes in the tapped mm-hmm. or, or maybe a fetch that hasn't been cracked yet, and they fetch a a tapped land, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's typically how Modern goes. It's very um, rare to see like a basic land being played turn one unless it's a two color deck. Right, right, right? Yeah. and you know, Modern's getting to that point. Well, I
2: th- I think that the Blood Moon plan is much stronger on the play than on the draw. Obviously, that's true, but specifically because of the fetch lands. Uh, as most decks, like the Jun deck is the, really the biggest one where you're, you're into blood mooning them. And so when they're on the play, they can do like turn one, shock or fetch for a black source, thought seize you, you play a land, then they can fetch or sh- or get their forest into play, play their guy, and now they're good. Right. So they've had that chance to both disrupt you and get the forest in play. But when you're on the play, on turn one, they can either thought Seize you or they can get a forest. They can't do both. Mm-hmm. It is impossible. So you can still threaten a turn two blood moon, Uh, against those decks.
1: Right, and and something I kind of forgot is that this is one of the few decks that does do turn two Blood Moon because of the rituals, and that's one of the reasons that, like, because other decks, there's talk that Blood Moon becomes worse in them because a turn three Blood Moon might not be good enough anymore because if you know they're on that plan, you can fetch correctly. But against Storm, you have maybe one land you can grab, and even then, you might be out of luck.
2: Blood Moon certainly just
1: got worse across the board.
2: In Storm, it has, it retains more of its previous value than it used to, I think.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. The fact that they can also fetch perfect like basics yeah. you know, with the fetches does make it a little worse. Right, but they're only going to play like one or two, or maybe three, if they're playing one of each of the colors, and they can just play non basics right, for the rest right. of them. Um, so if you can get them with the blood moon before they get those out, I mean, you're you're shining. Right. <laughs> That's the trick, that's, <laughs> and, and that's why Blood Moon becomes yeah. so awesome. Because and even against the control decks, that don't even play Mountains. They if they don't have the counterspell to get this for you, right? Let's say they go turn one like tap land, like a Colonnade or something. And you're Ooh. just like Blood Moon. It is over for them. Right, yeah. right. They, <laughs> they are they are in like sad Sadville. I oh, yeah.
1: anything it is the worst. It is pretty bad. I don't, I don't like it there. Everyone's so, sad. <laughs> that's, that's why
0: I personally love Blood Moon to just jam.
1: Alright, so let's walk through real quick uh the gauntlet. This, you know, the decks we go through every week to kind of. I really of talk just want to say
0: grape shot like every time. That... <laughs>
2: <laughs> Alright, so how do you beat Jund? Grape Shot! Okay. Actually, no, that's probably not a great plan.
1: Uh, against
2: Jund, you really want to go for the desperate yes. ravings. Uh and postboard, Empty the Warrens, is actually like pretty good against Jund, uh, because it forces them to basically have Anger of the Gods uh, as the vast majority of the other planes are not good against like an empty for right, you know, right. 8 to t- eight or 10 goblins, I which mean, you can do through a Thought Seize. You can't Grape Shot someone for 20 getting Thought Seized every right, other turn, right, but right. you yep. can empty them.
0: And that, can, yeah. that you can do. Exactly. Yeah, great. Uh, the reason why the board packs about 3 empty the Warrens is because you switch game plans against any deck playing black. They, uh, they will destroy your hand within a few turns, and you really can't afford to be slower than turn 3 against them. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be- I mean, your resources just become very
1: dwindled, uh, right? And, and it's a lot easier to grind out a game with empty the warrens where mm-hmm. you can attack multiple turns if you need to to kill them, versus just to hope the one shot grave yeah. oh, yeah, shot.
2: Yeah. Outside of its sweepers, Jund is horrible at defending itself from a bunch of one ones. That's one of the reasons that y- young pyromancer has actually started seeing a little bit of play because it's so good against cards like Liliana of the Veil, right, uh, right, and even to some extent Lightning Bolt if you can generate some value before they get actually get to kill your guy. And empty the warrens just like does is you know it's the young pyromancer without the pyromancer. Right. <laughs> Here's
0: a bunch of dude. <laughs> there, there was a sideboard plan for people who feared the graveyard plan, like or, you know when um, rest in peace was just running all over the place yeah. because people thought it right. was you know the the soul sisters loved playing
1: those because right, right. They, they didn't have anything to do with the graveyard. Well, I mean like <laughs> it gets rid of birthing or hurts mm-hmm. birthing pot. It hurts you. It or hurts storm. It hurts um, everything. Lingering souls. It hurts snapcaster mage, mm-hmm. which is everywhere. Mm-hmm. It hurts. Um, and then you like randomly hedge against stuff like. Um, once the Grave, all the creatures come back. Oh. A living, living End. Living End. It, it just a destroys Living End. Yeah. Just,
2: living end. yeah. These so, days, most people are going with Graftaker's Cage first and Relic of Progenitus second. Right. Which is fortunate for Storm because both of those cards are much more beatable than something like a Rest in Peace. Right, right. Uh, which really detracts so much from what you're doing. A Relic of Progenitus, it, while it gives them the ability to somewhat counter a Pass in Flames, if you you know play correctly, you can actually still get a pretty effective Pass in Flames by yep. casting it, Allowing them to resolve their relic activation, uh, and then you go ahead and add a couple more rituals before your past inflamed resolves uh, in order to be able to flash them back and keep going. Right. So it, it, those two cards are both much easier to beat than an ongoing rest in peace because you can actually build a mass a pyromancer Recension, Also, you can turn it on against a relic of Progenius. It's harder, but you can do it. Like they actually have to you know start paying attention to what's going
0: on. They do. Relic is uh, just the generic kind of answer because it cantrips. It's good. Right. I- mm-hmm. But I honestly, a very beatable card, is, as long as you can
1: manipulate the resources. That you you
2: got to know what you're doing, but you can do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so see. next, uh, blue, white, red. Since we've talked about that one before, hmm. or last week, um, blue, white, red might the game plans that it has against you are a counter magic. Um, B, the cyborg has all the access to all those white cyborg cards we we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they, they can learn a little
2: bit of hate. Uh, and they have access to counter magic pyromancer ascension is your best weapon against them by miles right. uh, an active pyromancer ascension is very difficult for them to beat just until at least they are sideboarding for wear and tears or can get to cryptic command mana fortunately your plan is to kill them literally the turn before they could cast a cryptic command right, so right. that's not that difficult uh, you want to watch out for mana leaks and remands uh, spell snare has fortunately become a lot less popular and it's one of the best counter spells against your deck by miles because it counters electromancer and pyromancer ascension right. and every ritual in your deck <laughs>
0: Uh, so that's good. Yeah, if they're running a full four of Spell Snare, it becomes that much harder yeah, it's to beat them. Rare, almost, right. almost
2: impossible at that point <clears throat> because Spell Snare into Snapcaster Mage Spell Snare is, like, just going to take you out, take the wind right out of your sails. Right, right, right. Uh, your Electromancers are pretty bad. They have a lot of removal for them. Um, so even though, you know, you have that, I get to untap and win, like, you it, it will vary, very, very,
1: very Yeah, the, the, the chances for blue, I read, that have no creature removal, that's also relevant, keeping mm-hmm. it against you as well.
0: So blue white red actually has decreased a little bit in popularity since it, it, came, yeah. it came out. So that when it was actually a little bit higher in popularity, I threw in a couple quickens in my board to try to deal with their whatever they yeah, were trying yeah, to, yeah. Do yeah. to stop me. Mm-hmm. Which actually ended up being efficient. Like when I they can believe that yeah, when they went snapcaster, remand your thing, you could be like okay, quicken, um, you know, grape shot, hit your, you know. Um, your Snapcaster, and then you get your Ritual back, and then you can keep going with whatever. And then, you know, there's there's there, there was there was instances and in sorceries that you could play at unfair times that literally beat them after they've tapped out.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, being able to pass in Flames in, in their end step for some random value could certainly matter.
0: <laughs> uh, against Blue White Red, you board
2: the Blood Moons that we talked about. are Really, really good in that matchup because it really stresses their ability to remove an enchantment. We already discussed Pyromancer Ascensions close to a win. When you have Blood Moon and Pyromancer Ascension, that's more enchantments than they can remove. <laughs> right. Uh, so drawing additional copies is also still pretty good. Uh, the Empty the Warrens plan is okay against them as well. Uh, you don't really want to side like all the way out against Gra- Grape Shot, uh, be- but you just want to try and... The easiest way to beat Counter Magic is to pr- be able to present consistent multi-faceted pressure like when you go all in you run the risk of getting shut down but if you're you know firing at them like a little bit here a little bit there a little bit here you can you can put them on defense and generally get them uh it's a little tougher if they're running the well i shouldn't say tougher but a little more dangerous to do something like that if they're running the resto angel kiki variant because they can
0: just kill you
2: right. uh, if you're not trying to just kill them
0: <laughs> yep which kind of segues into tombo twin right is that the next deck you want to talk about?
1: Or uh, Twin in general is the yeah, yeah, yeah the next pillar. So that includes Tarmo Twin and regular Twin. Yep. Um, so Twin is kind of the major other combo deck. We talked about mm-hmm. how earlier they're kind of different where one is much more about a synergistic entire deck game plan versus one's about getting two cards yep. into play at the same time and winning. Um,
2: I've, I've always found Twin to be a pretty tough matchup for Storm uh i I, have you had similar experience because it feels a lot like they're a blue white red deck that never gets colded by blood moon and can still just kill me out of nowhere so those are dangerous things to be.
0: well the problem is is every time you think you can combo before they can they just counter you and then have they the two cards they need always to just Mm -hmm. get you back uh however uh in sideboarding swan song has actually been yeah swan song
2: gave gave you some percentage that's for sure
0: Swansong Song was is is the card to bring in against and against Twin. So uh, explain what's Swansong. Swan Song. is a one blue instant that says counter target instant sorcery or enchantment, and so. it gives that person a two two
2: birdie.
1: Yeah, flying, which you is irrelevant care. against. Storm. Yeah, you don't. <laughs>
2: Pretty close to <laughs> relevant. To be fair, Twin can nickel and dime you out, but like your your goal is to win before right, that could right. happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, worth noting is that the wear Chair version, uh, they have access to well, uh, which disables Splinter Twin, uh, so they also have that additional weapon.
1: Right, right, because, I mean, it, it, something interesting that has happened, and it, it makes sense because Theros block was an enchantment block, is that enchantment removal has become much more relevant in the last year than it was for the last decade.
2: Yeah, they've, they've printed better enchantment removal, for right. sure. Uh, certainly more diverse, you know, we've talked about Soul Touch Arm a little bit, We're tear is one of the best enchantment disenchant variants ever printed.
0: Right, you know? right, right. It really is. It was a cool card to have. Yes. You know.
2: That was like course. when Dragons Maze came out, that was my card. I was like everyone else was, you know, excited about all the multicolor or the fatties or whatever. And I was like, ooh, they made a wear they made wear to
0: this is great. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are yeah, you guys talking about? <laughs> usually the choice to destroy artifacts or enchantments is uh, not it's, it's usually with green, yeah. the having having both options. Yeah. The the where,
2: elegance of the card is, too. Like, it's just it's always the most efficient thing at what it's doing, pretty much. Yep, and it's a possible
0: two-for-one, so... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah, I hurt. mean, twin, for the most part, is going to be an uphill battle, regardless of how you how you want to run things. Rare. I like to just go all in. Like, I just try. Like,
2: whenever mm-hmm. I think I can kill them, just go for it, because if they can't stop me, I win. If they can, I probably wasn't going to win anyway. Yeah, your
0: statistical average versus twin is not the greatest. Rare. So Rare. might as well, you know, go for the high variant option instead
1: of the, like... Let's see if I can drag it out, because they can always just turn for you, and you're dead. Twin is a deck that's really (laughs) hard to drag out, because they're always going to be able to just... If you stumble, I win. And Storm doesn't have a good way to kind of deal with that stumble as well.
2: You can't interact with them, and they can't interact with you. That's really the crux
1: of the issue. Your Your kill turn is basically very
2: similar, if not the same... Uh, obviously, they can never turn three, but like at the same time, you can very rarely turn three twins, so right, right, right. <laughs> it's not that different. Exactly. Uh, but right. their interaction actually contributes to them being able to further the game against you. Right. Well,
1: what what you do to make it so all of your cards all kind of to make you a little bit more consistent in your entire deck is going first specific game plan, you're getting rid of interaction while Twin is getting rid of some of that consistency for pure interaction.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and you
1: don't have much to combat that. Right. Especially post-board.
0: Like, your swan songs are barely beating whatever they're trying to throw in at you and they go, it, like, dispels and, right, right. Yeah, like, they, they way more efficient. Yeah, they, they, Yeah, their, their plan to stop you from doing your stuff is way better than your plan to stop them. Right. So, it's unfortunate, but also the deck isn't seeing as much play pot is becoming more more popular. More popular, yeah.
1: So speaking of pot, let's just segue right into that one.
0: I don't know. It's kind of a.
2: It can be tricky. uh You got you. I think that a familiarity with pot itself is really important. I think the matchup is generally favorable, uh, but at least I know, game one. At least game right. one. Before I, they board I, I know pot players who certainly would disagree, uh, but you know that's kind of the natural bias. I've you know you you always think that you know how to play your deck in the matchup and that you know how to handle it. So I think that it's close. Uh, I think I I would much rather have the storm deck just because you know we what well, we've talked about it. When you can't stop me, I kill you. That's huge. Like when I can't kill Pod first, like they play a Kitchen Finks or something. Like, Ugh, I know. It's not also, that big them, a deal.
0: Them getting Reclamation Sage was really good. Yeah,
2: Reclamation Sage is a really efficient uh, creature that can kill a Pyromancer right. Ascension two and a green for two one. Uh, and it's also good in a variety of other matchups, so it just gave them another card that they can actually afford
1: well, They now, They now have Reclamation Sage and Eidolon out of the side, so they have two of the better mm-hmm. kind of efficient ways of kind of dealing with what you're yeah. kind of the trying to do. The Sage is
2: easier to cast and more aggressive than harmonics liver as well. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, that, I mean, it's it's a small thing, but it matters. Uh, so but overall, I, I like being on the Storm side more than the Pod side, and I think that was borne out in the Pro Tour, even though uh, you know, in Pro Tour, Born of the Gods, the Pod player beat... Uh, the Storm Player, in top eight, but it was relatively fortunate that that happened. Uh, Healed Abrupt Decay hinged the entire game, and Pod is not chunned. It doesn't run for Abrupt Decays, generally speaking. It usually runs like
1: two, Mm -hmm. maybe three. Right. The the thing with Pod is, Pod's plan against you is, they have somewhere between three and four Thought Seizes in their 75. They have between two and four Abrupt Decays in their 75. I think actually now they're starting to run four. Um, And one Eidolon. And the the Enchantment Mm -hmm. and Artifact removal and those things are kind of they're going to try and stop you but they're way better game two than game one so game one is a much more of a free roll than normal um, or not normal but against like these blue decks we're talking about yeah. and so that's kind of the benefit against pod and then it really comes down to that turn games two and three if they get their hate cards against you or if you can get off before they can get a pod online
0: Exactly. Yeah, this is, unfortunately, where Anger of the Gods fell real short. Anger of the Gods, like, took away two to three turns of Pod before right. the Eidolon came out. And, you know, maybe we're valuing that Eidolon too good, but it's been a pain for me to deal with every time. Like, Wear and Tear is a much stronger card against Pod because they play enchantment creatures. Right, right. And, I mean, I still... I I wasn't doing Bolts before Anger. I was putting the Angers in and keeping the Bolts out, but now I'm starting to
1: put more bolts in against pod because you need to nuke the dorks. Right. Well, I yeah. can imagine also wear and tear, though, has some benefit because you can oh, you hit tear the pod their too. pod and wear their idol on gets a nice little yeah,
0: oh, good amazing. game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you... When you try to battle pod on its own, like the speed-wise, you, right. you... Unless you're super lucky, you're probably not going to win. Right? It's right. just the way the, the pod deck... They, they put out mana dorks, which increases their clock. You don't. <laughs> well, I think that
2: their uninterrupted nut draw is worse than yours, <coughs> uh, generally speaking. But they are, again, It's it becomes post-board. They look a lot more like twin than they did pre-board. Like they have exactly. actual ways to interact with you. So similarly to that matchup, you have to right. address them. They have way less ways, uh, right, and, you know, right. they're, and they're, they're not, not as threatening. The like, they can't essentially instant speed kill you by you know end of turn, this guy, untap, this guy, kill you. Right. Uh, you're generally assuming you're familiar with the matchup. You're going to be aware of what could happen to you. Right. So I, I would for that matchup, I think it's really close. Uh, I think it favors Storm slightly, and I would say you just got to play test it a bunch. It, it,
1: it, what, what Pod kind of ends up doing is it's kind of, especially in Cyborg games, it kind of ends up being the middle point between what twin is and what jund is, where, it's playing, a, a, like a, where it's playing those black cards, these like the, the abrupt decays and spell. so these are the things that are going to stop you kind of what you're doing, but then it also has a level of interaction and a game plan end game that can just outright stop you from winning Yeah, it's a, it's a hybro, hybrid right. combo
2: mid-range, um, although
1: hybro is a great word The difference though <laughs> is that <laughs> Uh, it has a better game plan against Empty the Warrens than Jun does, where it has... Um, yes. Orzoth uh, Pontiff. Orzoth yeah. Pontiff. D-
0: putting empties in against Pod is probably not right. Maybe right. one. Yeah. Uh, uh, if that. I think you're on your main game plan with Grape Shot. Yeah. yeah. When you try to beat them. Yeah. Obviously- Most
2: of their ways to attack you are the less disruption and more specific answers to your strategy, like Decay for your Ascension, uh, is really their pri- or whatever uh, sage is really their primary method right. of interacting with you, and outside of that, they're just going to try and lock you out from being able to win with something like idle. And as we've discussed, so and Jund doesn't have access to anything like that. Like Jund is all about just knock knock you apart to the point where you can't try to win. Pod doesn't do anything like that. They're just like this is in play. You can't win now. Please don't answer before I kill you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that, and that's a different way to approach it. And so Empty is great for you know, being able to battle back f- with few pieces. But right. Pod doesn't really restrict
1: your pieces. They restrict your overall ability to play Magic. Right, right. So next, uh, let's talk about Affinity. Um, you know, we talked about it in episode one. It's the artifact, get in your face, all, all the artifacts all the time, Deck. Um, I would imagine one of the biggest problems with this is just it's kind of a race where Affinity can kill you out at almost as quickly as you can kill them. So it's who can kill the other person the quickest. Yeah. yeah, it's when the die roll. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: You're both, in some ways, uh, very similar decks uh, as far as being like a critical mass style deck. Like right, you're right. trying to play a bunch of artifact dudes, you're playing, trying to play a bunch of rituals. Uh, neither of you have much interaction with the other. Post board, they can access some things like Thoughtseize or Spell Pierce, but uh, depending on how you build your sideboard, maybe you have access to, you know, Tear, or right, whatever right. at a minimum. Yeah. Maybe Shatterstorm, Vandal Blast, some right, haymakers. Right. So it depends, I think, mostly on the sideboards as to who is the larger favorite. Uh, game one, I, I agree with Leo, it's mostly pretty coin flippy. Uh, maybe maybe I would give a slight edge to Storm just because they have no answer to an Ascension. So if you're like turn two Ascension, you can generally win pretty right, frequently right, right, from right, that right. position. Uh, which in other matchups is not necessarily always the case. Well,
1: And, and against affinity doing the get
2: that goblin Electromancer oh, out there. Uh, yeah, uh, they have also similarly is, few answers yeah, yeah, to yeah, that. It's yeah. like, okay, yay, I win. So <laughs> I, I like Storm in game one uh slightly but again you know they can definitely not you I, th- I
0: think it's whoever wins the die roll game one
2: yeah i think it's i mean it, it, it's a tiny thing but i think it's mostly like you know like they're 65 if they win the die roll and we're 70 so like it's like slightly better for us but like i agree that whoever does win the die roll is the favorite in a given game yep. for sure uh, i just think over the course of like a large sample we have a slight edge
1: i agree um, you you wanted also to kind of round out the aggro section. We want to talk about zoo and kind of burn with affinity. Um, the main reason that this is important is the new red eidolon, which is uh, eidolon of the great I- revel. Eidolon of the great revel, which is a red and a red enchantment creature that anytime a spell with three or less mana is cast, it does any two two damage to the player who casts it.
0: Yep, right. Which these this is this falls under the category of wizards wants to produce quality hate bear creatures. Right you now, for the fact that it's in in red and it does this unique ability, it's it's something that hasn't. Is there any other card in magic pyrostatic yet? pillar actually? It's in a creature mm-hmm. form of pyrostatic pillar.
1: Yeah, the pyrostatic pillar is just an mm-hmm.
0: enchantment. So it's it really just so this enchantment is, does the same thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this is wizards just making it a creature like yep. a bunch of right. up- uh, uh, right. which obviously especially in big heroes. game
2: for its playability because it becomes a main deckable card uh, right, uh, even right. in decks that themselves uh, run a lot of cheap cards. Idol do Great Rebel is actually a card that I think has yet to find like its true homes. Uh, in legacy and modern, obviously it's a fantastic card for burn, and that is like a deck where it belongs, uh, as it you know right. has a very high damage output uh, in both formats. But I feel like it's because of its the virtue of it being a creature that can like legitimately threaten people. I think it's better than that. I think it can go in other decks too. I just right, think, right. I don't think I just I think we haven't explored them that fully. Like I'm interested in doing like turn one wild and a coddle, turn two idol and a great raffle like right, that, That's right. something you can do. That's totally reasonable. Like there are a lot of easy ways to play that combination.
1: Yep. And then just some extra scoop like storm. I mean like really that card your game plan is lightning It's a one.
0: very very and powerful card. Right. Like game 1 we have to we have to use a spell. Uh, get shocked, and then grape shot, and get shocked again. Yeah. Right. So, so, it's at least four damage to the face. And you're losing a wind condition, and it's, it's <clears throat> No, I mean, right, using, right, using yeah. a grape shot to answer it is is fine. The tricky Most, part about that is just having the grape shot itself. Yeah. Right, actually, you actually have to right, draw right. one, and you don't <laughs> run all that many. Yeah, you uh, run, like, two. Sometimes right, three, but right, mostly two, three, yeah. Usually because two. you only need one. Uh, so... Yeah, so if that, and unchecked you can't win. <laughs> pretty much, you, you that guy comes out turn two. Storm is pretty much just packing it up.
1: <laughs> okay, guys, so that's uh, it for Storm. Uh, you know, I want to thank you guys for listening. This is actually kind of you know the wrap of the episode. Um, thank you, Leo, for coming. Uh, if you guys are doing any major tournaments in the Southern California area, Leo is most likely going to be a judge there. So give him a big high five and thank him for helping out. Um, you know, you know where to find us. Uh, all that information will be at the end of the podcast. Uh, you know, all of the articles and deck lists that we mentioned uh, will be posted in the links below. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'd like to also give a shout-out to our sister podcast, The Command Cast. Uh, Jimmy and Josh do awesome Commander content and do a bunch of multiplayer fun stuff and do deck decks every week as well, every Tuesday. Um, and lastly, you know, everyone say goodbye. Leo? Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Yeah, it's been great. Enjoy. All right. See you guys next week. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to themmcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at Kes Wiley and at SecludedGlen.
0: See you later. Alligator.